Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by wealthy bad guys and poorly trained henchmen. I guess you're going for quantity, not quality. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Straighten Up and Die Right. The hot new Johnny Gosmer novel by Joe Chester is available now at your nearest Borders bookstore. Welcome, everybody, (laughs) to The Pestle. Uh, I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, actors, writers. Um, We do a lot of stuff, such as music, um, and we kind of bring all that into the fold about analyzing, taking apart movies, seeing how they tick, and then poorly putting them back together so that they never work again. At least that's how all my engineering feats went as a kid. Um, what's in there? And then I break it. And it, I know what's in there. It just does not work anymore. Um, Typically what happens to me is I'll, is I'll, something will break. I'll take it apart, say, okay, I'm going to take it apart, look to fix this. And I do nothing. I touch a few <laughs> things, move stuff around, put it back together, and that's it. <laughs> so you, you, I don't, I don't know. It, and it's interesting, you know, all the whole process of whatever creation is, is all always its own thing. Like I, every week we talk about filmmaking and, you know, I'm, I've been directing for over 10 years now from really tiny projects that, you know, I pay for (laughs) to pretty nice sizable things that clients pay me for. Um, And so a lot of the frame of reference that we do here comes from that. And yet it seems to translate in fact you have an album you're about to go into the studio to work on are you excited about that yeah i i very much am i think i've talked about it on the podcast a few times like that i've been working on this album for the last few years and and uh i'd stopped playing music for a while and for a few years and then just started playing around with stuff and then actually started liking what i was making anyway so i'm finishing it uh going into the into the studio next week and spend a whole week with with some of my mates finishing it and yeah before the podcast we were talking a little bit about about what that's like what that feels like and i think just for me and you had some good insights so i i said let's let's talk about it in the podcast but just to uh, kind of like uh, put it in context you know i've been working on these songs for years years and they're as done as i can make them i can't i can't do anything else i feel like that's it that's my statement and so to go into a room now with a bunch of other people and have, you know, ideas thrown out, I love that. I want that. And yet I'm a little nervous that I'll come out of it with something that's a little bit bastardized from what I brought in. Of no fault of theirs. Um, and honestly, of no fault of mine, because, you know, my goal is to to get the best of everyone and the best idea wins. And maybe that's, that's mine or maybe it's somebody else's, but I'm a little nervous that one, will I recognize because I've been married to this for so long? Will I recognize a better idea? Am I going to be married to the the demo? Right. And then um, also what if I try too hard to recognize the idea and I go with, you know, and I, I say, yeah, let's spend a lot of time and, and effort in on this, this idea that you have but really internally I kind of know that I don't like it, you know, or I know that I'm not going to like it. And you had some really great points that I, I coming from obviously a different perspective from a, a creative perspective, obviously, but a, a film aspect. 
Yeah, it's always tricky working creatively because like you said, you want people's ideas. You want people to feel free to uh, contribute and make something better than where you began. Um, And it's so, and the tricky part about it is for one, being able to recognize if you don't like an idea to be able to recognize it in the moment, because like you said, you might go too far and then suddenly, you know, you're walking out the gate and you're like, wait, I don't think I want that. (laughs) Now you're, now you're kind of shivering because you don't know if you have in the can, what you actually wanted to put in the can. And then if you are able to recognize it, to be able to shut it down in a way that doesn't discourage future, you know, creativity, you know, you want people to still feel free to throw out ideas. And it's really, really hard to be like, yes, I want all your creative ideas. No, that's a bad one. No, that's a bad one. No, that's a bad one. Uh, Because, you know, for me anyway, if I hear someone call my idea dumb, you're, you're not getting anything else out of me. I'm, I'm out. Like I, I'm such a, you know, whatever wilting tulip that, uh, I just don't feel safe to, to have bad ideas again. Uh, unless you can, you know, say that, ah, yeah, that's not working. You know, I, I see what you're doing. It's just not right for this one. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. What about blah, blah, blah. Um, and so it's a really delicate dance to be able to, you know, creatively include people uh, without discouraging them at the same time. And then the other trick of it too, you're walking in, like you said, with this demo of everything you've been working on. You, this happens in films all the time where you're on set and someone's got, you know, the grade up and, and video village. And so you're watching playback with some kind of temporary LUT, uh, which is kind of a, a, you know, quick color pass. And you're watching it on the monitors and you're like, oh, this is good. This is good, whatever. And then you get into post and you're editing with that same LUT and then you get into color grading. Now, look, you've just spent the past, you know, five months looking at it in one particular way. How hard is it to suddenly change all the colors? You're like, oh, remember when we set out, we said we really wanted this heavy blue tint. Yeah, but you know what? I'm, I really love this natural look that we got going on. Okay, that's that's fine, but buddy, you hired me to do a thing, and now I'm trying to give you that thing, and you're you're so you know ingrained this pattern that you've been watching for the past you know five six months. Uh, this isn't what the the emotion that you you have to start trusting people's. Yes, you have to trust yourself too to say that this was supposed to be a template. This wasn't supposed to be the final, um, and so you have a really hard. The journey ahead of you to be able to reimagine what you created um, in a way that still is open, it's available, but also finding what was the kernel of truth that you started with. Like that's, it's kind of mind bending to to walk in with all that in your head and it's, to throw it, it all away. That's, that's a great, <laughs> man. Yeah. Color is a great uh, correlator to that right because the color will change the feel of everything just in an instant just the way that it looks right yeah i mean the good thing is that because i've spent so much time with with these songs and with with the meaning behind them because each one of them has their own thing like it's it's not just oh i wrote a song no it's like i wrote a song in the context of other songs like it's like a kind of an emotional and ethereal journey and it sounds corny and you know very like uh i don't know creator uh ask but they each have a purpose and they each have a focus and it, it is possible for me to separate that from the songs it's impossible like so it's i think it's going to be pretty 
not easy, but pretty obvious if something mm. isn't serving that for me. And I think the easiest way around this and being in the room with the people, because I don't want to shut, like you said, I don't want to shut people down. I'm the same way too. I'll give you, I'll give you an idea. If you don't like it, not a problem. I'll give you another idea. If you don't like that, uh, and then a, a third one, now I'm done. Like I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit patient, but at the same time I have my limits. So, but I think my plan is at the beginning of working on each track, sit down with whoever's in the room say, this is what this is. This is what I want to feel. This is what this is supposed to make you feel. It's about this and then go. Right. And so, and so now it's not me saying, I don't like something. It's, it's me saying, does that serve that purpose? Does it make me feel more or less like this? To me, it doesn't make me feel that, you know, maybe if we took it and we did this or that to it, you know, so it's, it's actually the purpose that it's supposed to serve and that it either aligns with or doesn't not my own personal, you know, like, like decision-making. Yeah. Right. So, so th- I think that that might alleviate me a little bit from decision fatigue and, uh, and also like, you know, a, like take, get me off the hook for being the, the jerk, you know, for saying no, I that, don't like something. That's huge. I I've employed this once or twice in some of my projects where I know I'm going to be collaborating with a lot of people. And so, you know, I might sit everyone down and say, okay, before we write one word on the page, before we start collecting anything, I want to have a thesis statement that we're all going to agree on about what this project is and what it's not. And if we can just summarize it in one short sentence, we'll know if we ever start getting off track, we'll be able to point to this thing and say, wait, this is violating our thesis. Um, and having something like that as a guiding light is so useful. And that's, it sounds like to me anyway, that that's exactly what you've done. Each song has its own uh, internal emotion that you're trying to get at. And as long as it's paying homage to that, it it can take any form. Um, you'll know really quickly whether or not yes, or whoa, 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 this is violating the, uh, the grain here. Uh, so that's really cool. Dude, man. I love that. That is a great idea. I mean, I what I just mentioned was a thesis per track, but like an overall, hmm. like this, is, here's the overall, like, like thesis of the entire project. And then I already have mine per track. Like I've already, yeah. I, I know what each one is, but having an overall one, I don't, I don't think that I have that. And that might be my nervousness is mm. not having that, you know, because I'm not, I'm not nervous necessarily about each track, but I, as a whole, looking back thinking, oh man, you know, we did this on all these tracks and I just wish whatever that that's the nervousness. So I think that that's what I need to develop. Hey, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, man. A little breakthrough. Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. What other uh, breakthroughs are we going to have today, man? Well, we'll see. Uh, today we are uh, looking at Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, so if you have not watched this film, please pause the episode and go watch it. We're going to ruin a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. We'll look at a handful of things, at least. Uh, some of the story and writing, the humor, the way they subvert expectations. Uh, we'll also pull out a few screenplay snippets uh, and try to see how Shane Black's voice is distinct in his writing uh, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. After being mistaken for an actor, a New York thief 
is sent to Hollywood to train under a private eye for a potential movie role. But the duo are thrown together with a struggle, struggling actress into a murder mystery. Written and directed by Shane Black. Cinematography by Michael Barrett. Featuring Robert Downey Jr. as Harry. Val Kilmer as Gay Perry. Michelle Monaghan as Harmony. Corbin Burnson as Harlan Dexter. And Larry Miller as Dabney Shaw. Tell us where Harmony is. Fuck you, Mary. <laughs> you don't get it, do you? This isn't good cop, bad cop. This is fag and New Yorker. You're in a lot of trouble. For Christ's sake, who are you protecting? It's all over. Finney, Dexter's going down. I know about Veronica's lawsuit. I know Dexter was facing ruin. I even know he switched daughters. Which, for God's sake, actually did work for a while till last week. Yeah, what happened? Then he had to kill her, huh? Harry, will you put hey, a sock in it? I just I'm asking a question. No, I'm, I'm asking, saying, Yeah, if you ask a question, then it seems like we don't know anything, like we're okay, fishing. Okay, okay. okay. Right, right, sure. And for the record, it was the boyfriend, the guy who flew in from Paris. He would have spotted the fake Sorry. and said, that's not Veronica. Okay? Am I right? Fuck you. Oh, he's exactly. Right. So Dexter had Veronica killed, threw a dress on her, dumped the body, and walked away clean, except for one little thing. Underpants. One tiny little pair of undies. Yeah. <laughs> you think that's funny, huh? I'm gonna break your nose now. Okay. Oh. I want you to picture a bullet inside your head. Can you do that for me? Fuck you. Anyway, that's ambiguous. Ambiguous? No, I don't think so. No, I think he means that when you say picture it inside your head, okay, is that a bullet will be inside your head or picture it in your head? Like Harry, Harry, you shut up? He's got Look, a point. I don't know anything about a girl, seriously. I was bluffing. You know what? I think that you are bluffing right now. Harry, what are you doing? Well, what I'm doing for the guy who likes to bluff is I'm playing a little game called Am I Bluffing? Huh? Where is she? Where the fuck is Harmony? Harry. You want to play hardball? I can do that. Where is the girl? What did you just do? I just, I put in one bullet, didn't I? I you put, put a one. live round in that gun. Oh, yeah. There was like an 8% chance. Eight was percent. it just 8? Eight? 8? Yeah. Who taught you math? So, first time watching this? First time watching this. Yes. What, what, what did you think? Uh, well, this is the first movie I think that we've done in 222 episodes where I felt like I wanted to just look online and see what people thought <laughs> before I, I like gave my uh, assessment or my, my thoughts because they're, they're mixed, right? I absolutely adore and love Robert Downey Jr., and Val Kilmer and Michelle Monaghan, they're fantastic in this in this film. I love them. Anytime any of them are on screen, which is the whole time, I'm I'm just blown away. They're all amazing. The the film itself was so confusing and hard for me to follow. And I don't know if it was because I watched it a little bit late at night or if that's just what it's supposed to be. Like I literally had no freaking clue what was happening. And and if it was real. I mean, it, I didn't really understand that Val Kilmer, I thought he was like some kind of Hollywood director for a lot of the film. I must have, there was probably a line that I missed or something. I, and, and that he was, he was playing a, a private eye or he was, he was helping to train Robert Downey Jr. To be like in, in, in private eyeing or whatever it is. Like, I don't know. I missed a lot. And it was like really confusing. And then there was random violence that made it see it was so random that it made it feel like it was fake. It made it feel like at some point at the end of this, it's somebody's going to pop up and be like, hey, this whole thing was a test. 
you know, um, uh, Harry and you passed and now you get the role or something like <laughs> it, it, it felt fake. It didn't, mm. it didn't feel real, which is, it's just weird. The, the, the feeling I had after watching it was, I don't know how to feel. And because I obviously want to like it mm-hmm. because of who's in it. But the story itself, I did not like, I couldn't follow. I, I like, there was too much happening too far away from the other thing. You know, it was that weren't, that wasn't, that was only connecting for me. I feel like so much was happening and it was very uh, apart from each other. And the only thing connecting them was maybe a little statement that Robert Downey Jr. would make or a little statement that Val Kilmer would make. And if you miss it, because they talk really fast, and if you miss it, then you have no idea what the connection is. You know, you look at a film that we did recently, like Pulp Fiction, and that everything is completely separated. And yet, like visually, you can connect things, you know, maybe people are wearing uh, uh, some clothes, right? And you can connect them with with some other scene that you've already seen, or that you're going to see, or you see something happen that you also saw happen in another part of the film. Like it's connected visually. So even if you, you know, if you miss what people are saying, you still connect them. This film, there was no connection for me. And I, there were so many characters that weren't a part of the story. The boyfriend flying in from, from Paris hurt his daughter who we see like maybe 15 seconds at the party and uh, hugging him and, or daughter. And then, and it just was like, kind of a mess i mean i loved watching it because i loved their interactions rob rdj and val kilmer like i mean i this might be one of my favorite val kilmer films he's (laughs) just like performances i would say he's just so good in it um i just couldn't help but like you know (laughs) love it so robert val and michelle just make this film for me everything else pretty much completely falls flat except for like these these random hilarious moments that that rdj goes through like when he like the clip was perfect i when i watched that i thought whoa okay there's no way that just happened because he was just so upset about killing the other guy the other bad guy and that was a great moment too that he had where he started breaking down on the phone that he killed a person for the first time because that felt real because it was motivated Mm mm-hmm he killed that girl. And so RDJ got the gun and was like, um, this is it. Shoots him three times. And that was a great scene. I thought he didn't just fall. It was, mm-hmm. you know, he, Harry got to shoot him three times before he died. Like it really, we're like, we're killing this mf Um, So that it was like very motivated and, and good. And then his reaction at the, at later was very great and motivated too. So that when he does this and he kills this guy, I'm thinking, there's no way this can be real. He just he just killed a guy and was like so upset. And now he just killed another guy, you know, and I know he didn't mean to. Right. But which is the whole through was, line of the intention. I feel bad because I killed a guy on purpose versus, oh, man, this what are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But if he had never killed a guy, I, I don't know. I, mm. I don't know. It was just very confusing and hard to follow. And for that, I I wouldn't want to necessarily watch it again, but I would watch it again for their performances. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I haven't seen this since it came out in whatever, 2005. Um, and I, I remember having the same reaction both times. The first time I watched it and I was like, I enjoyed it. I don't really know what I just saw though. Uh, and then even okay, 
coming Good. in. I'm so glad it wasn't just me. <laughs> no. And then coming in again and I'm like, I, I kind of vaguely remember and I didn't, I didn't remember anything apparently. And watching it again, I was like, what's going on? Um, because this is one of those films that as a writer, maybe Shane Black thought the story is simple enough that I can make it very, very messy uh, in order to make it look more complicated than it is, but it's not, it's got enough complication. And I think the, the crazy part is I think it would only take an extra 30 to 60 seconds of runtime in order to clear everything up that you, that you need clear. And he has all the pieces in place. Harry is the perfect idiot that you need to repeat things to, and uh, to, to make, sure he's getting it right um and he they do that a number of times in the first place right uh, uh yeah but did they find her car like no idiot we found the car it was in the lake <laughs> he's like oh yeah right like he's already kind of doing that stuff and i just don't think it takes more than a minute of extra runtime to kind of double back uh and and clear some things up now the whole uh, uh gay perry being a detective thing yeah that might just be a you thing <laughs> like I that's a new thing yeah. yeah but otherwise like the the story beats are so you are really having to focus on everything that's being said some things are being muttered under their breath let alone not repeated and so yeah it's it's very very messy uh and complicated luckily to your point like the performances are all so good and the, the little moments between the characters are all so charming that uh, it's easy to get caught up in that um, instead of, you know, being super confused about what's happening and why. Uh, and this, I think, is also the kind of movie that invites you to rewatch it. Like I didn't understand everything, but I had a really good time on the way. So maybe rewatching it, you know, has some extra layers that I can peel back and start to appreciate because it's all there. Uh, it really is all very nice and neat uh, once you understand the story. But without that layer of understanding, it's just so like, who is this again? To your, again, yeah. to Can your I point. give you a, an, an example? of? So you say you say it would only take, you know, a couple of minutes of extra runtime. And I, I I very much agree with that. Let's give you let's give you an example. So when he's telling the story at the beginning of how he got to the party. And, you know, they're, they're in that, they're robbing that place and then they're, they're running away and the lady shoots his partner. Right. And then he runs away and into the, the audition and which is a little ridiculous, but it's fine. He runs in the audition and then, you know, his audition is he's upset that his partner is killed. Right. Well, let me give you an example. I didn't know that his partner was killed. I just saw that he was shot. Mm-hmm. That might be my stupid, you know, like, like, um, I'm, I'm a stupid viewer. Right. But I can't assume that he's dead. Right. I, I, he's shot like maybe in the shoulder or something. Give me 10 seconds of, of me knowing that he's dead. Right. Of like, yeah, I, I think in that, in that scene, it's more playing with him not knowing as well. And whenever now he's in this audition and someone's telling him, you got your partner killed. It's suddenly like, oh my God, is he dead? And that's the kind of gear we see shift in him go to go from survival mode of, I just need to get away from the cops to, oh my God, what if he is dead? I told him, I told him to stay in. Yeah. I, I think yeah. the ambiguity might be okay. working in their favor there, as opposed to uh, the girl with the pink hair. Like we don't really know why we're following her in the first place, other than she got in the car and 
that's ambiguous about how that ties into the sister. Like there's just so many running threads that you don't know who's who is the girl with the pink hair, the sister, <laughs> like at some point, uh, it probably wouldn't surprise me to be like, I thought that she was in wait, no, the sister's dead. Who is the dead body? The dead body is the daughter of Harlan Dexter. Like I've, and in some way I've watched this three times over the last week. Uh, I watched the movie, I read the screenplay, then I rewatched the movie again. Um, and it probably took reading the screenplay to really start to say, Oh, <laughs> I get it. Uh, when everything slowed okay. down, right. For my speed, <laughs> things get a lot yeah. easier, but yeah, uh, that my first rewatch, I was just not clear on who's who and why. Um, yeah. I mean, but the, but still that scene, like, like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It might've played better not knowing that he's dead, but I don't, I never see his face. I don't know who he is. I have no connection to him. So I really have no connection to his re his like per performance of his audition either. And it just was like, it didn't, I don't know. It just didn't feel right. I felt like we needed some other, another piece of information, whatever that is. I don't have to know that he's dead. Yeah. Uh, I guess you're right. Uh, but I feel like throughout the film, it felt like that. Like, I just need another little piece of information to like really understand this. And maybe to your point, it's a rewatch thing. You know, it's a, it's a watch it a second time. I think that if you have to read a screenplay to get a film, I think that that's a failed film. Uh, I'm just going to go out there and say that. I'm not saying that reading a screenplay doesn't help you understand or like like get a film. That's great. But if you have to, like, I don't know. If that helps you get it, then it it there might be an issue there, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I largely agree. Like this, it, it's really, really fun. Um, the banter is great. Mm -hmm. uh, the performances. I love seeing all of these characters on screen together. Um, but it does for me at least make me really scratch my head uh because i yeah you everything is so specific and um they're moving a thousand miles an hour but this whole movie is kind of a inside baseball kind of movie where uh it's a script that's for hollywood and la right it's a highly targeted in a way that it's it's mocking and so some films, the prestige films, if you will, uh, do the same thing. Oh, this is a movie about Hollywood for Hollywood. And it's all glamour and glitz and sparkling water. Uh, and it's just like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw up uh, as opposed to this movie where it's it's mocking it all mm -hmm. right there. You have these blunt conversations. What do you do? Uh, you know, I, oh, yeah. I, I invented dice when I was a kid. Uh, oh, okay. And the same thing in the bar with Fl with Flicka. He's like, I I'm a private detective. And she's like, okay. Uh, and she walks away. And he's I'm going like, to go see who else is here. Yeah, he's like, that's it? She's like, yep. <laughs> and it's, I, Can I say, please. I lived in L.A. Yeah. And that is very... <laughs> That is on the nose, LA. <laughs> when that okay, when that happened, I laughed out loud. I was like, "Yes, that's so happened to me before." <laughs> and I think that's the the intention here is uh, like I'm going to write a script and I'm finally going to direct because this was his first time directing. He'd written wow. tons of you know hits, hit after hit after hits. Shane Black is like can't miss um, at this point in his career, and. So for him to say, I want to really take a chance, I need to write something so specific that only I can direct it. And it's just harpooning everything he knows about 
Los Angeles and, and, you know, the film community, uh, and it's loving in these kind of backhanded way. Uh, not that anyone should ever take a backhand for love. <laughs> like, don't, don't misunderstand me, <laughs> but I love it. Like, uh, even in the script, it was funny reading it because there's this, uh, uh the guy in the party, the douchebag that beats him, beats him up, uh, in the script, he's labeled an ICM type. And like, if you don't know what ICM is, that means nothing to you. It's a, you know, it's a, a talent agency or whatever creative agency. Um, and so sub subsidiary, I think of a CAA. And so like, you have to kind of know and be in the flow of that landscape. And of course, who's going to be reading the script? It's ICM type of people. Like it's all them. And so to see themselves in the script makes it a lot easier to green light. Like, Oh man, you got to read this thing. It's so funny. Um, it's, it's taking the piss out of Hollywood and the, and the, most loving way possible uh it, it's and as well as making it you know this kind of private eye detective story and i love the i invented dice as a kid because was that I, in the script yeah that's in the script man you know what's okay. really impressive is how much of what you hear on screen is in the script oh wow it's highly scripted there's very little that you're hearing on screen that wasn't written out like, oh. but, but the delivery, right. It feels like, oh, they're ad-libbing surely at some points. Uh, not really. No, not, wow. not very much. Impressive. Very impressive. That's really, really strong writing. Uh, but the dice comment cracks me up because dice is prehistoric. Like dice has been around longer than writing <laughs> than the ability to document wow. it. Uh, six sided dice, not just like lots or whatever, uh, like actual six sided dice. Um, uh, the way we know it is, you know, thousands of years old uh, and so that little throwaway comment just kind of put me in stitches and i love the uh the food truck guy towards the end or the middle like brings out a gun and drops the henchman that feels like yeah. a very la kind of comment like yeah uh like if it were texas it would be the bartender who grabs a shotgun from behind the bar but uh being a food truck guy in the early 2000s uh in, in LA, macarthur park right yes. in macarthur park <laughs> I've been to MacArthur Park and everybody has a gun. <laughs> it's like it's like the uh, 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 what's the big park in New York? What is it? Central Park. It's like Central Park, but not anyway. Yeah, and so this this whole script and film is very much playing with all those uh, kind of tropes, not just of Hollywood but detective stories. And to that point, like humor is such a huge, huge part of this movie the 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 gift and curse of it is everyone sounds the exact same right it doesn't add a ton of specific character depth uh in the way that they speak or the kind of jokes that they make um it's just shane black uh but it that's not to say it doesn't actually create some specific character uh traits right because it reveals harry is definitely an idiot uh he just keeps getting things wrong in all the most you know hilarious way possible at, at the beginning he gets corrected for how he uses badly and then he tries to correct someone else on how they use badly and again he gets it wrong <laughs> and it's just really really funny uh to create jokes around you know writing because this is a writer's movie and, and to do it in just this kind of backhanded way it's it's really entertaining because it shows that harry doesn't have a clue and of course we we learned that early on with his you know hollow threat to the ICM type uh, when he's like uh, you know you could try but that little experiment will fail my friend <laughs> like, 
I will beat your ass, you know, and then you just get his <laughs> ass kicked. Yeah. But humor also keeps Michelle Monaghan from being just a hot girl on screen, right? Because it, it would be very easy to put someone like her on screen and make her really smart without any other kind of interesting character traits uh, because she's solving the, the the case before they do. And she's kind of got a loose bolt or two and, and rattling around in her head. And so giving her humor allows all that to kind of fully form uh, a three-dimensional character uh, instead of just kind of creating this nice love interest model that Harry's pursuing. And so humor gives her a lot to do on screen and she is so good. Uh, really well, well done. And of course, overall, it just creates a lot of chemistry in your core cast whenever they get to play in the same sandbox and throw jokes at each other. Um, that's, that's a really useful tool to create a lot of uh, uh, empathy. And otherwise, I don't think there's much distinguishing the forms of humor from each other or dialogue in general because uh, even the henchmen have these really you know silly jokes you know one guy the guy the clip that we heard right he's anyway that's ambiguous <laughs> why is a guy who's got a gun to his head you know cracking jokes well that's just kind of the movie this is and just the the kind of general witticisms and quippy comebacks they all sound like Shane Black it's just all him on on paper uh, which is fine that's that's not a bad thing and we'll circle back to that uh, in a few minutes but uh, another thing it does is it creates more gravity when serious moments happen, right? Uh, we're keeping everything so light. And then suddenly Harry's under a bed and this girl gets shot twice. And then Harry kills the henchman. That's a brutal scene. And it allows it to be more brutal through all the levity that we're, we're kind of experiencing along the way. Uh, because imagine this movie without the humor suddenly, you know, that's just another hard moment. Whereas, Oh, suddenly you have to lean up and it's so good to be able to take that breath of like, Oh, I'm, I'm glad I, I'm not laughing right now. In, in one sense, because as soon as that moment's over and he cries and we break away and then we come back and he's downstairs dealing with his finger, we get right back to the humor through the dog, right? He's eating the finger and now we're kind of brought back to the levity and it's like, Oh, I, I can laugh again because I've had a moment to breathe um, or at least, you know, step away. Uh, same thing with gay Perry at the end, right? Uh, he gets shot in the chest. That's a rough moment. Cause you're kind of waiting for him to uh, roll over or something, but you also see clearly, and it's this wonderful moment. I thought this was just really good directing because uh, the bullet strikes him, and the way they frame it is not in the front of the chest, but we see kind of the angle of his back and Harry's chest. And we see the bullet kind of exit the back and hit Harry in the chest. And you're like, and it's a little confusing. It's a little disorienting because you're like, wait, did that just go through him? And then you see Harry roll over to try to grab him uh, and he's not responding. And then he tries to give him mouth to mouth and blood starts pouring out of his mouth. And you're like, oh, my God, like Perry's dead. What the hell? This guy I've been laughing with this whole time is suddenly dead and it just punches you in the gut. And now the stakes really shoot through uh, the roof because they're much more real now that the humor's gone. And because of that strong contrast, all that lightness is really paying dividends in the serious tone that we're suddenly uh, taking on. That was heavy when the blood started coming out of his mouth. I, I feel I felt that, too. Great point. And the other thing that it does is it allows the humor throughout the film allows for this meta commentary to take place. Right. If the movie's light, lots of humor. Then we can start to roll in commentary about Hollywood films, writing the voiceover, breaking the fourth wall. 
without breaking the flow of the film. Instead, it's all kind of one deal and it's centered around humor and comedy. Uh, and the movie isn't taking itself too seriously. And so whenever uh, some things happen, uh, you can kind of laugh at it instead of be horrified. And that's what they're doing with subverting expectations, right? Perry shoots the girl in the head. You don't expect that. It's like, oh, look, her, her neck is broken. Uh, but if you actually start thinking about that scene and how it all played out, Perry killed that girl. Like, full stop. Because she was beating on the trunk whenever it was sinking. She was still alive when it went into the water. And it wasn't until he went to open it uh, because he wanted the key. And, and he shoots it open and he inadvertently kills her. And, you know, so when you really start, stop to think about it, it's like, oh, my God, he, he actually killed her um, <laughs> while trying to save her. Uh, and so it's there's a lot of kind of subversion of expectations that are happening throughout the film. Uh, same thing with cutting the finger off, right? I think that's just so good uh, because we constantly in movies see uh, doors get slammed on people's faces and um, and they do it in this movie before it happens. There's another scene earlier in the film where she shuts the door in his face and we're kind of like, whoa, did his finger get caught? Okay, no. And we're just on to the next scene. Nothing happened. Great. Well, they do it again and uh, she opens the door and like, did I just cut off? And we're like, no, we didn't see the finger fly off. And whenever they cut to that close up of the finger on the floor, you're like, oh, my God, that's gross. Um, and I just love that as an idea because torture your characters. Like, why not? What are you, you know, what are you saving um, if if you, if it builds empathy, if it creates tension along with some humor? Uh, suddenly, like him getting the stitches pulled out, you're just cringing um, at that and all it does is really make you lean forward into the film, not away, uh, because now you're reading his emotions much more closely than you were before. And yeah, it just adds a whole new layer of interaction between the audience and the and the film itself. Uh, same thing, <laughs> uh, subverting expectations again. This is playing with all kinds of uh, tropes. But at the end, he gets shot and he's like, goes and finds her uh harmony on the ground and he's she's like oh you got shot he's like you want to see something cool and he pulls out the book and you're like oh cute the book stopped the bullet and then she puts her finger through the hole she's like no it didn't and he's like oh yep no it didn't uh hospital please <laughs> you know it's just it's really good because we're all that's such an eye roll moment of watching a character get shot in the chest and the pendant stopped the bullet because the pendant represented the love that this other character had, whatever, like it, it's a pendant, <laughs> like it's not stopping anything. Yeah. Um, and I love that he, he uses it and then completely subverts it because that's so ridiculous. And he builds on, and they recognize those kind of moments too, right? We get into the hospital and Perry rolls in, in his wheelchair on the corner He's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You know, Hollywood gets the notes from the executive saying, oh, you know, it's a little bit of a downer. Everyone, the guy should live. He's like, I get it. Why not bring back everyone? The girl uh, with the pink hair and, you know, the, those other guys we killed. And, and then you have like Abe Lincoln and Elvis trying to step into the room. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just pushes it a little further than you expect him to. It's really clever. I that's, Those are the kind of things that create the the charm around this movie because he's pointing out all the things that are kind of stupid and lame and then using them in one way or another either to topple it or to lean into it like yeah we're gonna bring back the guy because why not i yeah i love that 
I have one small note before I look at some of the screenplay stuff uh, about the performance. This is something I do with uh, some of my actors, depending on what the scene needs, which is in that earlier scene that we were talking about, the, the audition scene where he walks into the room and he's suddenly in an audition. And there's this moment, that moment where everything shifts for him is when she, she makes that comment about or she reads her line and it's whatever to the effect of, you got your partner killed. Um, and he suddenly is like, Whoa, I, I didn't know. I told him to stay home. Right. Everything changes. That's a big moment that we need to feel that shift. And the way you feel it is his head jerks up when she says that line, he reacts to it. And what I love about that, and this is, it's so simple. Um, and it's one of those things actors don't always understand, um, in the moment, you know, that maybe they get it in class, right. And it's like, Oh, okay. But sometimes you get on set and there's so many things happening. Uh, an actor may not realize, Oh, I need to react to this. Well, how do you react to something? It's by giving yourself space in order to create a moment. And for Robert Downey, this is super easy. I do this a lot is he's looking down at his page. And so that whenever she says her line, he can look up. That's it. That's all you need is just a reaction because the normal thing to do in acting is to watch your partner so that you're reacting to what they're saying. But, but if you need to have a bigger emotional reaction, you need to be looking somewhere else so that now you can turn your head and there's motion in the camera and you can have a shift in your face. So he goes from just a normal reading face to suddenly he looks up and his eyes are wide and he's, he's gawking and he's stumbling for words like that little shift, just looking somewhere else and looking up, uh, creates all the thing you need to happen in frame. Uh, and it's, it's stunningly simple and yet incredibly effective whenever you're just trying to create a moment. Yeah. Simple things like that. Uh, the screenplay was really interesting. I've never read a, a Shane Black screenplay. I've, I've avoided it. Um, because I, I, especially early in my writing, uh, I don't want to call it a career just yet, but, um, even though technically it is, but it, I'm, I haven't sold a feature. Right. And so I was learning screenwriting through you read, you're supposed to be reading, you know, at least a few scripts a month, which I'm terrible at in general, but along with writing, I, I didn't early in my, my, you know, 20s as i'm starting to learn screenwriting and shane black's name is getting thrown around all the time i didn't want to go and read his stuff and then want to emulate him and so i was because he's got such a distinct voice um i've always avoided it and now i i have my own voice i'm i'm, I'm pretty confident then so i was like you know what i just need to read at least one of his uh to see what all the fuss is about like what does he do in his scripts uh, and so it was just really interesting reading his voice because he does have his own you know, style, um, that I haven't come across in the, you know, three screenplays I've ever read. No, I've read a lot more than that, but it's, it's interesting one, before I get into the snippets, uh, one thing they changed in the script that I thought was interesting, that isn't obviously interesting, but is the room number whenever, you know, she goes downstairs and they're like, yeah, we got a call from room 714. And she's like, no, it's 514. I was just up there. It's, it's terrible. All the, all the, all the noise, noise. Yeah. Um, and in the script, it's not room 714, it's 314. And I just found that interesting, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the original 314, you could look at it in a number of ways. Pi 3.14 is the first digits of pi. And 
this is a whole movie about trying to solve uh, a puzzle and Pi is something without a solution. Uh, and so just in a vaguely interesting way. The other thing you could look at 314 as is it's kind of 143 is I love you. It's kind of the code for, you know, I love you. And this is I love you, but shifted. Everything's a little bit off. Uh, and so I don't know what he his intention was, but just think I, I'm always interested to see numbers in, in films because of what else they might be pointing at. Um, yeah. And so the, uh, the, I think the reason they may have shifted it was maybe they just needed the room that was higher up to give them a little bit more distance in order to wrestle around with the body, the cops having more time to go down and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, the, but the snippets, uh, How do you spot that stuff? I, uh, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The the writing though is always interesting. the The term I've always heard, or the 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 bit that I've always heard was I don't remember if it was like Lethal Weapon or uh, the Last Boy Scout, but in one of his scripts, he writes something to the effect of in the screenplay, the the cops pull up into this parking lot filled with the kind of Lamborghinis and and uh, Porsches that we're all going to buy once this movie becomes a smash hit, uh, and it's like writing that into a script is you're breaking the fourth wall. You're talking to the reader and you're saying things that don't really have anything to do with the story. <laughs> like you're, you're painting vaguely a picture, but you're also being really entertaining. And if your script isn't that you really can't get away with that kind of stuff. And no one else can write that kind of stuff now because Shane Black has kind of put his you know fingerprint on it. Uh, and so those are the kind of things I didn't want to get into the habit of idolizing early in my writing career, just because I, it's so dangerous to, to do something. And then suddenly people are like, Oh yeah, he's trying to be like Shane black. And now instead of people reading and saying, this is a Wes Evans script, they're thinking, Oh, Wes Evans is doing a poor man's Shane black. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. you don't want someone thinking about someone else's art when they're looking at your art. Like that's a terrible way to go. Um, oh yeah. You can't stand out that way. Um, and so you need your own voice. So anyway, here's some interesting things that I, I saw in the script that I thought was just funny um, and specific. Uh, and so this is from page 13. This is early on. This is the whole rope protocop his his little play on robocop uh, it's the protocop sequence where she's at home and protocop breaks into her apartment uh, and so it starts uh meanwhile no hint of caution by the intruder clumping footsteps ponderous harmony inches down the hall reaches a corner hazards a look since departs fish grow wings the cubs win it in four protocop protector of man all six five of them pneumatic joints robot head swiveling impossible and so just that little line, uh, sense departs, like the departure of common sense is what he's saying, right? Fish grow wings, the cubs win it in four. I thought that's just a really funny way to kind of mentally paint the picture of this is not, this is illogical. In no way should protocop, the guy we were just watching on TV, be in her kitchen. Um, and he's trying to emphasize that for the, for the reader in a way that is just breaking the fourth wall, because in a sense, the, the protocop character himself broke the fourth wall, uh, by suddenly being from TV into her kitchen. Uh, yeah, I love that fish grow wings. The Cubs winning in four. It's like, wait, what are we talking about? Uh, yeah. Fish must be flying if the Cubs are winning. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Um, it. another one, page 45, 
Oh, this is funny. He stops hearing Harmony gasp. This is him in the the hotel room where she's passed out uh, and the spider's crawling around on her chest and goes into her bra and she thinks he's looking at her boob or whatever. So he stops hearing Harmony gasp. She's looking down. Harry follows her gaze. She lets slip her bra, exposes one breast. It's there, just visible if you squint. A squished spider leg on her aureole. Uh, I think he meant... Areola? Yeah, it's spelled... In a very scientific way. I'm sorry. I don't know all the lady parts okay. <laughs> or man parts. Uh, trailing buggy fragments. She looks at him radiant. Granted, history has seen more romantic moments. Their eyes lock over the severed leg. She offers a hand. Uh, I love this little throwaway. Granted, history has never seen. History has seen more romantic moments. He's kind of commenting on uh, the silliness of romanticizing that. In fact, there was a spider there. Um, yeah, just a little silly comment. The other thing I noticed uh, in his script, he doesn't overly use slug lines. Slug lines are the thing where it's like interior hospital day that kind of tells you exactly where we are and when. He doesn't brutalize you with those, which I really appreciate. But it's also probably one of those things that frustrates a line producer when they're trying to go through your script and find out how many locations do we need and you know how many times uh, are we bouncing around, whatever. Instead, he'll do, so I'll, I'll read just a little bit here. Exterior, Lehman Bros, mortuary, establishing night. A transport van backs toward the mortuary doors, arrayed around the van. Four dudes, all natty in dark suits, ostensibly mourners. Oh, please, drug addicts. Meanwhile, across the street with Harmony, she coasts to the curb, lights off, peers out. And so instead of kind of rearranging the scene in a way that's like exterior whatever street because we're it's effectively a new location but he does this a lot throughout the script where instead of cutting back and forth on a phone call it's just like oh whatever we've established that they're in two different locations bam 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 but throughout the script i just saw that he constantly is changing locations we might walk indoors from outdoors and you never know it because he just says in the, in the script uh, and we walk through the door normally you kind of break it up and just say exterior house continuous uh he's like me eh, uh, we'll, mm. we'll just keep it going um that's a interesting way same thing you know later in that scene whenever she steals the the whatever it's not a hearse but the van with the coffin in it and i love this the coffin bursts open not all the way enough to admit one trailing hand this is when the coffin gets flung and it's hanging off the ledge mm-hmm. enough to admit one trailing hand one dead girl's hand dangling limp over the freeway, spotlighted, festooned with Christmas lights. Got it? Good. Now let's wind the clock back five seconds because another concurrent result of the crash is Harmony flung loose, expelled along with the coffin. Like, I love this little, he's trying to make sure you get it uh, moment, which is the coffin bursts open, not all the way enough to admit one trailing hand, one dead girl's hand dangling limp over the freeway, spotlighted, festooned with Christmas lights. He's not literally going to put, like, if you watch the movie, there's no Christmas lights. There's no spotlight. Um, he's just trying to make sure we understand that there is a hand dangling outside the coffin. Because guess what? Harry, in about, you know, two minutes, is going to be dangling off that hand himself. Uh, that becomes his saving grace, is this dead girl's hand. And so for the reader, he needs to make sure that they understand that there's a, gr- a girl's hand sticking out of the coffin. And he's just going to belabor it with a spotlight and Christmas lights. Um just a, seems like a very Shane Black way to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, this is fun. So this is when Harry uh, is dangling off the off the ledge, 
and he's got to make a decision to to become ice cold and start murdering everyone because <laughs> like you said he goes from i killed a person and having a you know complete collapse to i now kill people <laughs> and, and that full transition happens here um he shouts out uh, harry shouts out harmony harry shout full of pent-up rage frustration another angle 20 yards up range. This is another time when we don't cut to a new slug line. It just says another angle, 20 yards up range. Actually, he might want to tone it down a bit because his voice carries the gunman halfway in the car stops, looks. And that brother is when all is when it all goes to hell. <laughs> and so he's just like talking to the reader. Yeah. It's a very, very fun read. And I was just really blown away with the fluidity and how everything just kind of pops around and it's entertaining for the reader while also making sure you're in the flow of the story. Um, it's really, really clever. Um, Harry blinks away rain gasping his 38 revolver stayed up above on the edge barrel protruding. He casts about despairing something, anything the overpass starts to vibrate. Remember page five, the thing that began this mess. It's okay. I don't either. In any event, at that moment, a city bus rumbles past like, well the the city bus at the beginning is what tangentially pops the 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 cable off the 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 bypass and sends him running because the alarm goes off um and the similar thing is happening now because that's the thing that triggers the gun loose that's what he had in the script in the film harry himself becomes responsible for it which is a better way to go because harry kind of bounces the, the the coffin that loosens the gun that he suddenly grabs and starts murdering everyone but in the script it was the bus the 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 bus that originally popped off the circuit breaker letting the the siren go off is kind of the same bus at the end that rumbles and loosens the gun that you know becomes a saving grace the thing that cursed him and put him in this thing is the thing that gets him out. And that's a very, you know, buttoned up way to, to write it. But it's, that's the difference between right, good writing and good filmmaking. Uh, because in the film, you want to see your, your character be their own saving grace. You want to see them be the reason that they get out of it. Um, not luck or happenstance because it doesn't feel as true watching it happen. Mm -hmm. um, it just feels like luck. And so that's nice uh, change of pace, uh, difference between the movie and the, and the screenplay itself. Um, the last one I have, okay, this is whenever he's still dangling and he, he's about to fall off the, uh, whatever, the bridge and land on top of the car uh, and start going after it again. Abruptly drops, plunges five feet, stops, kachuk. Harry's dangling legs, now easy prey. A panel truck clips his foot, jars him. Still, he hangs on, clutching the dead girl's hand, grimacing in pain. He draws down in the speeding sedan, harmony, stirring. And he, that's when he yells out. He triggers a shot, bang, echoing in the night. Bang, another, nothing. Car window down, gun emerging. And so, drenched in rain, battered and broken, Harry quits playing and simply slays the motherfucker. Bang. <laughs> I love that. I love that. He's just telling you about the dead eye serious that happens in films, right? Where the guy takes a shot, bang, bang, bang. And then he, right. He stiffens his arm. He, he squints his eyes and he's going to like line up the shot a little bit more. Instead of saying all that, he says, and so drenched in rain, battered and broken. Harry quits playing and simply slays the motherfucker. <laughs> bang. <laughs> it's just a really fun way to, to engage the writer about the, the kind of silly, aspect of filmmaking and we know what we're all doing um he makes it entertaining but at the same time when you watch it it plays it doesn't take away anything to write it that way and then to film it the way that you know it's going to be filmed uh, again that's the difference between writing it and shooting it just genius 
Yeah, I'm impressed with his writing, man. I, I knew I would be, and it definitely makes me want to go back and read like The Last Boy Scout. I remember watching that as a kid. I was like, I don't know, 12 when that came out, and I snuck into the theater with my big brother uh, and just freaking loved it. Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans having all kinds of great one-liners back and forth. Yeah, and so I might I might go back and read that script and watch the film. I own it, and I haven't watched it in a while, so it's it's that's due awesome. it's due for a cycle. Yeah, that's that's all. I think I punched myself out. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I imagine you should have a lot because you watched it twice and you read the the damn screenplay. Is this what we're going to do every week now? Are you going to watch? You're going to read the screenplay for every single film that we do? No, I've debated that. Uh, that's one thing I want to do when we do Interstellar again for the you know seventh time. Um, uh, okay, I'll do that too. Yeah, I was going to ask if you would because I think that'll be really yeah. fun to. Uh, see what's on the page and yeah that'll be really fun absolutely i will i mean i know every word to that film so <laughs> it's, i could just read it without watching it and be like that wasn't in the movie <laughs> right yeah i've done yeah. that with like dune um where i went back and read it and watched the movie and i'm like oh i i don't know i think it's been a weird process of getting comfortable reading scripts because on the one hand i don't want to read a script before i watch the movie a uh, friend of the show, Key, uh, really loves doing that. She'll go read a script before she's seen the movie and then go watch the movie. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, as opposed to watch it, read it. I'm like, oh, I see what they did. Because I, as a you know movie lover, I want to watch the movie first uh, and, and let mm -hmm. let that wash. But yeah, uh, no, <laughs> I know you're joking, but uh, I, I don't think so. But there might be a couple more times where, especially if it's a writer-director, as a writer-director myself, I, I think I could probably learn a lot about the way things translate onto screen because there's a number of things that he changed from the script to the, the, the screenplay. The screenplay doesn't open with them as kids doing the magician act. He opens with like quotes, uh, which may have been more for the reader's benefit. Yeah, I don't even know. He might even started at the party or, or something else. But I thought that's just a really smart way to open the film because now we've got this image in our head embedded we don't know what it's in reference to and then he can kind of point to it uh two or three times throughout the film um as a as a centering point like oh remember this remember this yeah because it was the very first thing we saw and the ending is completely different uh i love the ending in the film it puts a nice button on it the movie just kind of ends oh the other thing is perry at the end of the movie goes in like backhands the dad right the dad is dying in his bed and he just goes and berates him that's so good because in the script it's actually harry harry goes back and he oh. almost all the same dialogue and it's a big change just to have two different people doing that same scene uh because it feels right it does feel like a perry thing it does feel like something that is true to his character as opposed to harry Harry isn't, he doesn't really have those kind of balls. <laughs> like Harry is the guy who wants those kind of balls and he doesn't have it. Instead, in the script, instead what happens, Perry goes back, writes a wrong. And then the movie ends with uh, them having this conversation to the camera. Like, what are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. No. And he, and he turns the camera off and it gives us uh, a frame of reference for where all the voiceover was coming from. Because in the script, there is no frame of reference. Uh, it's just... The movie just kind of ends and that's it. Uh, instead, in the in, in the movie, suddenly we have a reason why he was talking to us and breaking the fourth walls because he was talking to a camera and it doesn't really solve everything, but at least 
gives the audience a frame of reference of, oh, that's kind of the silly final gag, right? Of uh, the character talking to camera. Cool. Yeah. So there, I think, you know, maybe in, in some future episodes, it would be fun to, to look at why some things were changed from the script. Um, and maybe I can avoid making those mistakes in the script in the first place. Cause that happens inevitably. You just write things that you can't really film and you have to rework it in rehearsals or God forbid on the day. <laughs> oh yeah. Nice. Uh, That's... I don't know. Any final thoughts, ideas, cursings? <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like I would have enjoyed the the screenplay more than the the film uh, in in some ways, right? I mean, I, I definitely want to go back and rewatch it just because, uh, just because Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer specifically, I mean, are, are just amazing in it and so much fun to watch and to be around, and especially you know with Val and yeah. um, what happened to Val. So it's it was it's watching it is just like, oh man, gosh, he's in his prime, he's killing this, you know. And that that was the most enjoyable thing to me. And then uh, RDJ's delivery of just pretty much everything is so good. I, I sent you that clip of uh, the Tropic Thunder clip. I think did you see it on on Instagram? Just like it's just like a bunch of uh, clips of of his performance in Tropic Thunder. And I'm just thinking, I'm watching it. And I'm thinking, oh my, like who, how is this okay? How is it accepted? Like I just don't only rdj can do it only right there's so many things that only he could do and uh and ben stiller of course because i think he wrote that but anyway i just i love robert downey jr i always have uh, i've just thought that he's like a a an interesting guy because he's always himself even when he's a character like i i always is right and i think that that's unique and special in its own way it doesn't yeah. mean that he's the greatest actor of all time it just means that he's very interesting to watch and to experience delivering information in the way that he does you know whether that's through words or not or just reactions i believe him i always believe him you know and that's that's the first thing like right if you're an actor you have to be believable and then you can be good like it, you can't it can't be you can't be good without being believable so and then val Kilmer is just you know uh, amazing michelle monahan was fantastic um but i i really like your breakdown of the script in this i think that that really helped me hmm. because through throughout it i just had so many questions but now you know you reading it out loud made me think oh okay even the guy who wrote it doesn't really understand at some points hmm. you know he's like he's like get it neither do i okay let's <laughs> keep going you know it, like Things like that. Okay. And um, he probably does get it, yeah. but just writing that means that he understands if you don't. Yeah. And I just wish that that would have come across visually in some way, um, in some moments, but it was still a, an, an enjoyable watch and, uh, and really liked it. So. Yeah. It's lightning fast. And mm -hmm. I, I was curious. I'm, I'm glad, honestly, that you struggled with it because Again, I've watched this when it came out because everyone, you know, on screenwriting forums or whatever, uh, were kind of raving about it. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll see what the fuss is. Oh, yeah, that's really funny. I just don't understand what I just saw. Uh, I guess I'm the idiot here and I'll, I'll go back into my hole. And so hearing you, like, gives me a little comfort. Like, okay, you know, it, 
maybe some people are getting it first time through. Maybe it's kind of like primer though, uh, where it's a little tough your first time through, but if you appreciate it for the other parts that you do catch, which is all the humor, then on repeat viewings, it all starts to get a little bit clearer because it's not, it's not like I didn't understand anything. It was just like so confusing about who was which character, like the whole, I don't think even after the, the, my first watching this week, I still didn't understand why we were at the, the clinic, the little, you know, hospital thing uh, with the underwear and people, you know, in the whatever the. Can you explain that? Yeah. So that is owned by Harlan Dexter. Harlan Dexter owns this uh, like psychiatric ward effectively. And he stashed his real life daughter there because she was fighting him. I'm, and still, I don't fully understand over money. I want to say uh, that's kind of uh-huh. my knee jerk reaction is ultimately everything is about money. And so in order to swap her out to settle a lawsuit so that he didn't lose his bacon, um, he stashed his daughter in there because he owns it. He can do that. Hired a double. Uh, and now the daughter is being filtered back through there um, so that that's the the body that we find at the end is Veronica Dexter, Harlan's daughter, after she's been killed and she's going to be incinerated. Uh, but before she gets incinerated, for some reason, he stashed her at his own little hospital thing. And that's why everyone's going there to find the body, uh, to, to get the proof, the evidence that they need. Yeah, but ha- but they they knew that his that. The inmates just didn't wear underwear, and that was the key. That was the uh, yeah. That was their their okay. big revelation. Right. Yeah, right. it's hey, you know. it's not clean, Todd. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not clean. <laughs> it, it's a thing, I guess. Whatever. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it, it definitely. So so let me just say really quickly. Like we talk all the time about, I don't want to be handed things as a viewer. <laughs> I I definitely don't. However. There's the line in the sand for me is the is the, you know, where did the T-Rex come from statement? Oh, you know, like like camera left or something. Right. Uh, it's just like a understood. Don't worry about that. Like, yeah, that's a you know, detail. just be here in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Be in the moment. Right. And, and I like that. I like that. But right. When you're having to be in the moment and also trying to understand something that's pivotal to the story. Right. Because that moment, understanding it wasn't pivotal to the story, but this one, it kind of is. That's the line I kind of have to draw, which is like, which is that like if it's pivotal and I don't and it's not like um, if it's pivotal, there needs to be some kind of explanation at some point in some way. And maybe there was and I missed it and I need to just read the screenplay or watch it again. I don't think so. I think. If I were writing this, my logic would be, this is such a flimsy plot point. I don't want to focus on it. I want to focus uh-huh. on anything but the idea that this Hollywood actor uh, is in a feud with his daughter who he stashed at a psychiatric hospital that he owns and is going to try and incinerate the the evidence. Uh, that just all sounds very kooky. Uh, instead, you know what? joke <laughs> Here we, here's some humor joke <laughs> there you go all right all right yeah that said yeah like exactly <laughs> oh nice awesome. um what are you going to recommend this week yeah so uh, i want to re- recommend a couple of things well okay the film that i want to recommend is uh a film that is like one of the the first films that my son and i like 
really loved uh one and i can't believe i haven't recommended it yet is uh wreck it ralph uh we watched it again last night and there's just a there's there are two moments in the film that i literally ball every single time it's one of my favorite animated films and the second one i is like whatever it's like okay for me but but every time that we watch that movie, my son and I and my daughter, we just like hug in these moments and we're just like, oh, my God. Um, so, so it's so good in every respect. I, I absolutely adore that movie so much, so much. So I want to recommend Wreck-It Ralph. But and I know this is going to come out post this, but I also want to just t- say and tell you there is a comet coming. I don't know if you've seen this, but there is a comet coming. It's got this weird, weird number name. And um, the night of January 31st to February 1st, you you should be able to hopefully see it. It'll be bright enough with the naked eye to see it. And it hasn't been here for 50,000 years. Its orbit takes 50,000 freaking years. The last time it was here, Neanderthals were walking around. Like It is a big, big deal to me. So I'm going to I'm going to stay up late, take my kids out and, and we're going to look at this thing. So. Sorry if you missed it, if you're just now listening to this episode, but I'm I'm very excited about that. Nice. Very well done. I was so on the fence because uh, I really wanted to recommend The Nice Guys, which is another recent Shane Black movie with uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, Gladiator. Jeez, Russell Crowe. I forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and But... Uh, I last episode, I mentioned that I, I would drop my other podcast that uh, I, you know, recently been enjoying listening to. I talked about the the Directors Guild podcast. Jeez, uh, uh, I'm on it today or whatever it's called. And today, I guess I'll recommend the other podcast that I've been enjoying. Uh, it's called Script Apart. It's a uh, one screenwriter hosting and he brings on other screenwriters and they talk about the first draft of a script and what changed along the way into making the movie. And so the goal is to go back and for him to read the first script uh, and then look at the movie and be like, oh man, so you know XYZ was in your draft. Why did you change this? Or tell me about the process of making this movie or blah, blah, blah. And so these are really interesting conversations uh, that, that they're having. And I have some like qualms and this is kind of the, the, I don't want to, I don't know if it's the problem with Hollywood, but uh, my frustration with a lot of podcasts and interviews is there's, there's times when he's interviewing someone and it's a bad movie. And I'm like, why don't y'all talk about how it's a bad movie? Like, I, I, I know you don't want to like poop on someone's work and I get that. But if we're here to discuss and dissect and learn, I want to know why it became this negative thing when you clearly set out to make a good thing. Um, There's so much value in that because I highly doubt a lot of these filmmakers or these writers write something and say, Oh yeah, this is going to be a really bad movie. I'm, I'm really excited about that. No, but I also don't, you know, expect them to watch the movie and be like, Oh, that was so good. Right. Everyone, uh, whatever, Jurassic Park five. Uh, this is just turned mm-hmm. out exactly as amazing as I expected. Like, no, no, no. Walk us through, you know, why Transformers, the last age of extinction or whatever, uh, turned into, you know, a poop fest. Was it always going to be a poop fest or did you start out with something mm-hmm. that was gold um, or Prometheus? Like let's, let's discuss why Prometheus did not go according to plan. Uh, and it just frustrates me listening 
to really, really smart, smarter than me, screenwriters that won't point out the gorilla in the room that, yo, this turned into a stinker. Let's analyze that and get better. Let's let's help everyone uh, that because it's the it's, he's got an audience of screenwriters. I know he does. And why not? Let's let's demystify how things become bad. Uh, this is one of the things I've always appreciated about Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Uh, whenever I first started screenwriting, I was just addicted to their website, and they have like a really good article about how great scripts become really bad movies. And they use their own work. They call it out. They say, hey, I wrote this. And before you go and judge it, here's what I want you to know about the process of making a movie. That's so much more informative, so much more interesting uh, to dive into because it's, it's acknowledging that art is subjective and that it's really hard to make anything. And if anything comes out good, my God, you know, that's that it's a miracle. And so anyway, Dude, that's a, that's so awesome to hear that. To say that again, making art is hard. And if anything is good, that's amazing. Freaking like that's, miracle. So I like, I've never, I've honestly never heard that. So I, you know, like whenever I'm making something or you're making, like we, we hold our, our, our the results of what we make at such high, high level. How could we ever live up to it? The fact that we're even making anything is awesome. Like, it doesn't even matter. Like, forget good. Good in air quotes here. But but then if then if it actually turns out good, how incredible, you know, the stars aligning that that in the end, the end result is actually good. Hence, loving the process. You know, the more you love the process, the more possible it is to be good in the end. Right. Because then you're making decisions based on the art itself because you love it. As opposed to, will people like it? Will I be able to sell this? You know, how? what's the box office going to look like? No, like <laughs> you cannot think about that shit. That is not anything that's ever going to make a good anything. It, it just, I don't know. For I, I also love, like one of my favorite writers is Bono. And I think one of the brilliance, brilliant things about him is that he'll say something I already know in a way that I've never heard. Yeah. And I think that's what just happened. You said that and I thought... Nobody's ever said that in that way to me. Oh my God. Like, yeah. Like the fact that we're even here on this planet is crazy, but the fact that we are making something is amazing. But the fact that if it's even good, like that's even more incredible. Wow. Anyway, sorry. I no, no. Uh, yeah. You do have to love the process and it's why, you know, you're going into the studio, you you're the director and you having a really strong vision of what it is you're trying to do is so crucial um, because you're going to be the one thing that either prevents or creates catastrophe. Um, and working on set, you know, whenever I have an idea in my head, and this goes back to our first conversation at the beginning of the episode, I do the same thing where I'll be on set and someone's doing something that I don't want and 50, 50 chance on whether or not I correct it. Like sometimes I get run over on my set it just depends on what I'm making. And, uh, I, not, Early in my career, it was probably more 50-50. Now it's probably like 90-10. But I get on the wrong set and I'm making the wrong thing. And suddenly, you know, I go full wallflower and I'm just like, okay, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just back on my heels all of a sudden. Um, a child again on the playground, you know, getting my lunch money taken. Uh, and so having a strong vision walking in prevents all the catastrophe because you already know, like I painted this in my head. I know that brushstroke doesn't go there. 
I like that you think it does. That's cool, but step away from the paint. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well said. Good effort, team. Well said. Um, <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. Next week, we do another uh, request. This one's from Uva. Uh, we're going to finally tackle Jerry Maguire. Sorry it took so long, man. Um, yeah, uh, we, we, we had a backlog and all kinds of things on the on deck, um, but we, we saved the best for last. I think this is the last one. I'll have to check my notes. But yeah, this is, the I think, the last in the queue of requests that we had. Jerry Maguire. Yeah, stay tuned for that next week. And we'll whatever if you're enjoying the show good god uh it's early in the morning for me yeah um (laughs) don't forget subscribe drop us a review leave us a note something you want us to talk about kind of things you find interesting yeah you and if you want to leave a note on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash kiss kiss bang bang and our quote of the day is from the incomparable shane black an action film can have too much action picture an equalizer on a stereo With all the knobs pegged at 10, it becomes a cacophony and is ultimately quite boring. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Because where do you go from there, right? Uh, I think uh, Bono, I'm going to quote Bono, said it best. Notes are expensive. Mm. Meaning Meaning the more you add, the more it takes away from what you can do. So... I think that I think that Radiohead musically is a great example of that of using less is more having dynamics right and I think a film is exactly the same way you know if you keep everything up here every Transformers movie is at a 10 every single time <laughs> Michael Bay then how where do you have to go like you know let's do this let's 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 ride the wave and uh, very very good point too many notes yes yes that's it too many notes (laughs) too many notes (laughs) yes this one goes to 11 (laughs) oh Oh, it's fantastic yeah i completely agree like being able to pace your film action that might be one of the things that keep you know so many b movies from taking that extra step is you cram in so much action and because we don't care about anything on screen it all becomes meaningless muck uh it's like oh cool fight choreography i guess but i just didn't care because i don't care about any of these characters nor do they care about them you need to spend time with them means stepping back from the action sometimes yeah uh shane black is an interesting guy i i appreciate you know his thoughtful approach to writing even if sometimes it looks like he's just doing all the things all at once uh he's he's a really sharp guy um and i'm still upset that he never stepped in on that first predator to write the ship amazing thank you man thank you for that deep dive into the script i think that that really helped me a lot uh you know and i think the next time i I watch a film that i'm not totally getting maybe i'll Mm. go find the screenplay and and watch it and see you know like it's one of those things where if if the world gets it or if you get it i don't have to get it but i want to know why i don't yeah you know that's that's the thing all right i want to know why i'm why i have a different opinion even if that means that i just have a different opinion that's fine you know, but reading a screenplay, I think, definitely would probably help. So thanks for that insight there. Huge. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. As Wes said earlier, please subscribe, review us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. Uh, and if there's a film that you'd like to to see us do, please let us know. We uh, we love getting your, your requests. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Yeah.